This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays, 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Rob Breckenridge. On today's episode, Premier Kenny is in Ottawa fighting for what he says is a fair deal for Alberta. But what does that actually mean? And is it going to put Albertans back to work? Also in the program today, the owning versus renting debate. The head of the CMHC thinks we're over-glorifying homeownership. Plus, a new study throwing cold water on the idea that social media is making us all miserable. Perhaps a digital detox is not the path to happiness. Premier Jason Kenney is in the nation's capital this week uh, looking for a fair deal for Alberta. There has been a lot of talk these days about a fair deal for Alberta, and that means, I think, a lot of things to a lot of different people. The concept of a fair deal, I mean, who would be against that, right? Uh, The words go so nicely together. Any kind of transaction you can imagine, the idea of getting a fair deal just comes across as reasonable. So if Alberta is looking for a fair deal, well, what's unreasonable about that? And there's certainly a lot to that. Look, I I think Alberta has a lot of genuine uh, gripes with Ottawa, be it the current governing liberals or just with the the nature and the structure of confederation itself. But at the same time, look, we had that that, um, unemployment report last week from StatsCan showed 18,000 jobs lost in Alberta in November seems to me that the economy, jobs, needs to be priority number one for the Alberta government. If somehow a quote-unquote fair deal fits into that, so be it. But a lot of what's talked about in terms of a fair deal really has nothing to do with jobs or the economy. And if something has nothing to do with jobs or the economy, why would that be a top priority for the Alberta government right now? It is interesting, too, that the premier is in Ottawa looking for a fair deal and the fair deal panel, which is intended to hear from Albertans on what a fair deal ought to look like, is in the midst of of hearing from Albertans. In fact, that fair deal panel is going to be here in Calgary tomorrow night. Uh, So I think we should be careful about uh, what we're focusing on right now. And I, I think we need to make sure that the economy and jobs remains the top priority for this government. Now, in fairness to Jason Kenney. I think he recognizes that. And so he he had a speech today before the Canadian Club in Ottawa today talking about the concept, at least as he sees it, of a fair deal for Alberta and talking about his five key urgent priorities that he is going to raise with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and the federal government this week. And there's not a lot here that certainly I would disagree with. And in terms of priorities being related to jobs in the economy, I I think the premier, for the most part, is where he needs to be in terms of the message we're going to take to Ottawa. So let me play for you a little bit of what Jason Kenney said in this speech today in this section here where he outlines what these five key urgent priorities, as he describes them, are for this week. Firstly, we are seeking a firm, fixed and fast deadline to complete the Trans Mountain expansion to get Canadian oil moving to new markets so we can bring investment and jobs back to Canada. 
I'm specifically asking uh, the government to commit to upholding and enforcing the rule of law to ensure that this happens and to make it a priority to bring First Nations into the project as equity partners as quickly as possible. And on this, we in Alberta are leading by example. We have just passed through the legislature uh, the, uh, the creation of the Alberta Indigenous Opportunities Corporation, backstopped by a billion dollars of the faith and credit of the Alberta Crown to facilitate Aboriginal financial participation in and co-ownership of major resource projects, including prospectively pipelines, because we think it is an economic imperative. It would be a game changer in terms of, of completion of major projects, but we also recognize that we have a, it is a moral imperative of our generation to help our indigenous people benefit from the resources that lie below the ground that their ancestors first inhabited. And we hope the federal government will join us in that. The second thing I will be raising this week with my colleagues in Ottawa is asking for payments that we should have received between uh, during the height of the, our, our downturn under something called the Fiscal Stabilization Program, a kind of, the way I explain it to folks, is a, a sort of equalization rebate designed to soften a sudden decline in revenues typically for have provinces. Alberta suffered a $7 billion revenue drop in 2015 due mainly to the world energy price collapse. But because of a per capita ceiling put on that program many years ago, we've only received $250 million. And so we will be seeking, with the unanimous support of every province and territory expressed in the communique of the Council of the Federation last week, and Minister Freeland, I can assure you that if the federal government decides to do that, to recognize the huge adversity of my province, that we will put those funds to good use, helping to create good blue-collar jobs in areas like reclaiming abandoned wells that will help to improve our environment at the same time. Thirdly, we seek the repeal of Bill C-48 and Bill C-69, recognizing that the latter is unlikely. Uh, we will hope the government will work with us constructively to mitigate uh, the uncertainty created by that bill, bill uh, for example, on the uh, project list. I'll give you one example. We've got a huge conversion from coal to natural gas fire power going on in Alberta right now. But in order to make that happen, the electricity companies need to build pipelines to bring natural gas into their electricity plants. And unfortunately, if they're a certain length, they fall under the federal aegis under Bill C-69 of the Impact Act, and that's taking years to get to an approval. So here we have the private sector with the support of the provincial government trying to do something that will materially reduce CO2 emissions, and we're caught up in a bureaucratic morass. These are practical, simple things that we can do together. Another thing that we, that we believe must be done is to get to a, a, a positive approval of the tech resources uh, mine in northern Alberta that would create thousands of jobs that has uh, multiple deep partnerships with First Nations and Indigenous communities. And if this project does not proceed, it would be a clear indication that there is no way forward for this country's largest natural resource. My fourth request of the government, which I know will be echoed by uh, Finance Minister Travis Tays in his meeting with Minister Morneau, 
will be an expansion of, of tax instruments like flow-through shares to simulate job-creating investment in resource-related activities. Flow-through shares are a proven tool to accelerate job-creating investment and we're asking the federal government to expand them to include activities that will improve the environmental performance of our energy sector, such as carbon capture projects and decommissioning of spent oil and gas wells. Again, I think that I really believe that on these issues, we can find common ground with a federal government that is very much focused on middle class jobs, environmental protection, and prosperity for Indigenous people. We share these points in common in our agenda. Let's find ways of acting on those shared priorities. And my final emergent, urgent request to the Prime Minister tomorrow will be an equivalency recognition for Alberta's methane reduction regulations. Last, or earlier this week, what am I, is it today, Monday? Okay, excuse me, it's all a blur. On Friday, I want to commend and thank um, uh, the Government of Canada for having uh, announced an equivalency agreement for our levy on major industrial emitters, the Technology Innovation and Emissions Reduction Plan. Uh, and we ask that a similar consideration be given to our very rigorous methane rules, which according to a study co-sponsored by the federal government would reduce more emissions than the federal regulations at a significantly lower cost. Let me conclude with a final appeal uh, to those who persist in seeing our insistence on a fair deal as selfish or parochial. Uh, people who feel that way, I believe, completely misunderstand the Alberta spirit. In our hearts, Albertans are patriotic and generous. So if a growing number of Albertans see themselves as not fully at home in their country, a country they have so dutifully served and to which they have contributed disproportionately, then it is the responsibility of all Canadians, but especially the national government, to address that. All right, so that's from Premier Jason Kenney speaking today at the uh, Canadian Club in Ottawa. He will be meeting, of course, uh, with the Prime Minister. He's got other cabinet ministers in tow. Uh, the uh, Finance Minister, Travis Taves, for example, is going to meet with his federal counterpart. So Alberta making the, the full court press here. And I think what, what Kenny outlines in, in that part of his speech, uh, like I say, really not unreasonable. I don't know that that falls into what we might consider a fair deal. I think the idea of pressing for different or smarter policies you know, in the face of, of changing economic circumstances, just makes sense. Uh, so going through them again, number one, uh, wants uh, a deadline set, a hard deadline on the Trans Mountain Pipeline completion. I mean, okay, but I, I suppose if Trudeau came out today and said, okay, it's going to be finished by this date, at this time, I think it would still be a case of, well, I guess we'll, we'll see it when it happens. I, I don't know how much that adds to the situation if the prime minister sets a date. Uh, but let's hold his feet to the fire on getting this project moving forward. Like I said, we got some good news on that front last week. Uh, number two, uh, allowing more indigenous groups have a major stake in, in some of these resource projects. I, I think that's in the works. We've heard a lot about uh, what's going on with Trans Mountain and a future, uh, indigenous, uh, future indigenous ownership of that pipeline. So I think that's happening. It'll be interesting to see what happens with this uh, proposed Eagle Spirit pipeline. Kenny didn't mention it by name, I don't think, today, but... Uh, that's where there could be some problems for Ottawa on C-48, this idea of building an indigenous-owned pipeline uh, to northern B.C. and to the coast, which would fly in the face of the tanker ban. But again, yeah, that makes sense, uh, which, again, is not necessarily a fair deal for Alberta. It's just about a, a smarter approach to these issues. Uh, Kenny talks about amendments to uh, C-69, the Impact Assessment Act, 
Which, again, look, I mean, is certainly flawed legislation. The Senate passed a number of changes to that. What more specifically do we want to see? Uh, wish number four, wanting to see flow through shares, the expansion of, of these kinds of tax in- instruments so that there can be more investment in uh, energy sector jobs. Uh, specifically, uh, could encourage more investment in well cleanup, cleaning up uh, uh, orphaned wells. Which, yeah, again, makes sense. And and uh, I suspect we're probably close to uh, some kind of an Alberta federal deal on, on funding a well reclamation program. And that would go a long way, I think, to getting some people back to work in pretty short order. Uh, and the final uh, priority outline there was uh, some kind of an equivalency agreement, like we saw last week with the Kenny uh, program for uh, industrial emitters, uh, to have the federal government recognize Alberta's methane emissions as well. And basically recognize that they are indeed the equivalent of the federal rules and therefore we don't need those rules imposed on us. All right. Five priorities for the most part pretty reasonable. It'll be interesting to see what kind of a reception he gets this week as well. Because I think you get the sense that the prime minister also wants to show uh, that he's willing to bend, that he's he can compromise, that, that he understands that there's some frustration. So we'll see what kind of reception these pretty reasonable requests get. We've been hearing this for some time uh, from Evan Siddell, president and chief executive of the Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation, uh, about his concern uh, around policies that are pushing up prices. But he's also of the belief that we're over-promoting, that we're glorifying home ownership at the expense of rental units. So he has said this before. For example, something he tweeted back in May the glorification of home ownership is plainly elitist and out of touch with 1.7 million Canadian households in core housing need. Stigmatizing rental housing is regressive and fans the fires of high house prices. Uh, even during the federal election back in September, he said this glorification of home ownership is this odd North American thing that's counterproductive economically and socially. And then at a recent Globe and Mail event on affordable housing, he said much the same thing. We have to call out the glorification of home ownership, he said. Renting is a perfect and valid housing option and may in fact be the best long-term option for many households. Now, it's certainly true that for a lot of young people, especially in places like Toronto and Vancouver, even to some extent here in Calgary, home ownership is maybe out of reach or much more out of reach than it was 10 or 20 years ago or a generation ago. There are certainly a lot of Canadians who rent. Maybe out of necessity or maybe because they see it as best for their situation. Certainly there are a lot of advantages to owning a home and ensuring that your payments every month go to something that you're going to own at the end of the day uh, and that is an asset for you. But there are also advantages to renting. And so I think the comments from the head of the CMHC raise uh, you know, an interesting question. Are, are we building too much in terms of houses, condos at the expense of rental units. Now, inevitably, when it comes to rental units, somebody has to own that. But is there still something to be said for renting? Does does this guy have a point here? I know people have strong opinions on either side of that debate, but I wanted to talk a bit more about kind of what this all means to young people and assessing the uh, pros and cons of renting versus owning. Joining us on the line is Lisa Jackson, managing editor at youngandthrifty.ca. Lisa, thanks so much for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Hi, Rob. Thanks so much for having me today. Yeah, it's an interesting debate, I think, for, for, for all Canadians, but certainly for young people as, as you know, they're starting out looking at that first home and, and home ownership, especially in certain markets. It's, you know, it's, it's expensive, isn't it? 
Yeah, I mean, it's an ongoing and raging debate, I would say, especially, um, I would find, I would say in like looking at generational conversation, like there's been lots in the New York Times about boomers versus millennials mm-hmm. and the generational battle going on there. The one thing I would say is there's really no one right answer to this ongoing debate. It really is a deeply personal choice, whether to rent or to buy. And it really requires looking deep at your values and doing some number crunching before you make the leap to either. Yeah, absolutely. And I think people got to do what makes makes the most sense for them. Um, it is interesting, though, that the CMHC head is, is suggesting, though, that maybe the debate is, is too skewed one way. Do, do you think there's a point there? Well, I mean, there's definitely, I would say, more value placed in society on home ownership. It's something I hear from my dad mm-hmm. all the time. You know, buy a house, buy a house. Like, you should put down roots. It's a good investment. Those are the things that we hear a lot, both in the media and from just, like, other people. Um, but really, times are changing, and it's really hard for the generation right now to make the leap to home ownership. There's all kinds of hurdles, things like paying off student debt and the mortgage stress test in and of itself is, you know, difficult. Um, The job market is not what it was 30 years ago. There's more precarious employment. You know, we don't get the benefits and pensions that go along with jobs anymore. And just the sky-high housing costs, both for rentals and for owning a home. Like in Toronto, I was completely priced out of even buying a house. I could probably get a really nice vacation home in Hawaii for what I could get in Toronto. So it's not necessarily something within reach, and the conversation needs to shift a bit to maybe look more at things like building affordable housing and uh, looking at how to help Canadians right now, you know, make ends meet and bridge that gap. Yeah, and that's an important point because in a, in a market like Toronto or, or Vancouver, I mean, th- those are the, the two you know examples of, of the hottest real estate markets uh, that, yeah, I mean, buying a home is, is out of reach for most young families. But, you know, obviously, it's not as though renting is an easy solution either, because obviously, then, if real estate values are high, that's going to include all properties. So if it's crazy expensive to buy a house in Toronto, I'm guessing it's crazy expensive to rent a place in Toronto. It definitely is, and it's com- it's very competitive. I have heard from friends who are currently looking for rental units in Toronto. It's very similar to the housing bidding wars. Like now landlords, some landlords are expecting you to put in a bid and compete with other renters and uh, to score a plum spot in a nice location. And uh, it's certainly not cheap. I, my sister was renting a two-bedroom uh, apartment, nothing fancy, in Kensington Market for two thousand dollars a month, and it was maybe seven hundred square feet. So it's it, that's a lot of money for a single mom, and, and it eats up a big chunk of your paycheck. So yeah. Well, and I mean, yeah, and it's unfortunate because I mean, it, it chases young people, young families out of the city, and certainly Toronto is an example of that, isn't it? it yeah, and I think we really lose something when people are chased out of a city. Like, we start losing, um, and it affects not just homeowners, it also affects retail as well. Like, I know there's been a lot of press about Hamilton, how a lot of the chefs are leaving Toronto uh, because they can't afford the rentals anymore, and they're setting up shop in Hamilton because they can actually open a viable business, and that contributes to Hamilton becoming a more vibrant city. Um, and, you know... 
thing. So it's the same with home ownership and rentals, like when people are priced out and uh, neighborhoods are gentrified and become more expensive. I think we really lose our creatives. We lose, uh, it becomes definitely um, something for privileged people. And yeah, it's, it doesn't benefit anybody when that happens. So no. that's something the government needs to really put on their agenda. Yeah, I think they do. Uh, much more, by the way, youngandthrifty.ca. Lisa, thanks for your input on this. Appreciate you making some time for us here today. No problem. Thanks so much All for right. having me. Take care. Uh, Lisa Jackson is a managing editor at youngandthrifty.ca. And, uh, yeah, they had a recent uh, piece up on, on the rent versus buy debate. So they lay out the benefits of owning your own home, and I think those, those benefits are pretty obvious, right? You're building equity. It's generally a good investment. And I know there's some markets in Canada that are more challenged than others. I mean, Calgary went from being a really hot market to, um, you know, a fairly lukewarm market. But generally, in the long run, that, that's, that's an investment that's going to increase in value. Uh, there's stability. Uh, you know, with a fixed rate mortgage, you know what you're paying on your mortgage, right? So as opposed to rent, when your rent can go up. Uh, so there's all of that. Now, there is the downside of owning a home, which, as they point out, there's, there's the commitment, obviously. There's the ongoing maintenance cost, uh, maybe even less disposable income. So what about the benefits of renting? Cheaper? Well, maybe. In general, rent payments tend to be lower than mortgage payments and may cover other costs, such as utilities, hydro, cable, and internet. But keep in mind that somebody owns that property and probably making mortgage payments themselves, so it's going to depend on their situation, too. So I don't know that it's, it's a hard and fast rule that rent payments are lower than mortgage payments, and you really got to do your due diligence on that. Uh, flexibility, though, they say that, that renting gives you a lot of flexibility, which is true. Little no maintenance, which is true. Now, again, the downside, you're not building that equity. Uh, the landlord is calling the shots. There is that, that instability. So how do you decide? As they say, it's wise to dig in and analyze your current financial situation and your short to medium goals. So what, what are you looking to do? So look, I think there's still a strong case to be made for ownership. Obviously, if you live in Toronto or Vancouver, I mean, yeah, good luck with that. Uh, or even in Calgary, I mean, if you're just starting out, if you're a young family, I mean, buying a home today is a lot different than it was, you know, 30 years ago. In terms of, you know, percentage of income, going to mortgage payments, etc. Or how, how many years you would have to earn income to, to afford the cost of that home. Yeah, I mean, housing prices have gone up a lot more than incomes have. I, I think that's a fair point. But there is still a case to be made for home ownership. Are we doing so, though, and emphasizing that at the expense of rental? Are we discouraging the construction of rental units? Are we forcing people into home ownership? Well, maybe it's not right for everybody. Are we, as the head of the CMHC says, glorifying home ownership? All right, getting a lot of texts on this. You want to jump in on the phones, uh, you can do so as well. 403-974-8255, though, is the number for both. Uh, let's go through a few of these. Now, regarding uh, markets like Toronto and Vancouver, this text says, housing, not currently a good investment. Toronto and Vancouver, probably still in a bubble. Yeah, I mean, th those are just, yeah, those are the exceptions in Canada. And, and those are really crazy situations. Even Vancouver really has kind of leveled off or even dipped slightly over the last year or two. And, you know, Vancouver, especially with uh, so much of, of the, the stock there owned by people who don't even live in the homes, probably don't even live in the country. It's, uh, it's a weird situation. 
So you buy a home right now in Vancouver. Uh, in the short term, you, you're probably really just going to hold steady. Maybe even even drop a little bit. I mean, it's still an crazy, uh, crazy, uh, an insanely valuable uh, piece of property you're holding on to, like a two million dollar home. But I don't know how good that is as an investment. Where where are these markets going to be in five or ten years? I don't know. It's weird, and it's you know it's unfortunate what happened. I mean, it's it's supply and demand, and I know we want to be careful about the government uh, monkeying around with that too much. Uh, but it is unfortunate you get these these um, cities in Canada, which just completely and totally unrealistic for for most people to live there. So that that's definitely the situation in those two markets. Yeah, are they in a bubble? Yeah, maybe, maybe they are. Uh, let's see here. This one, uh, someone who works in the uh, housing construction industry says it's crazy how our sales have gone down. And quite frankly, it's tougher and harder to own to a point where we are seriously considering downsizing to a townhouse. Everything costs so much nowadays, and ownership is definitely one of them. A bit depressing when you start thinking about it. It's almost though you can't have success without having all of these different governments and entities wanting a big piece of the pie. You know, and the thing is, look, when Calgary's economy was going gangbusters, so too was our housing market, and prices were jumping a lot each and every year. It's a byproduct of your economy doing well. And, I mean, that's a problem you want to have. Because when your economy goes in the tank and housing prices then follow, sure, housing's a lot more affordable. And I guess you can paint that as a silver lining of the situation, but it still doesn't change the situation. Uh, let's see here. A few more Texas one says, every time I'm up to my ears in another home repair, I don't feel so privileged. Someone else says, Rob, almost every person I know that entered retirement with a paid for house has had a better quality of life in retirement. And business owners often use equity in their homes as a way to start or expand their businesses. Definitely. Right. And that's something you really want to consider uh, investing in a mortgage, getting to retirement with a home that is paid off put you in a really strong position. Now, if you're able to put yourself in a situation over those years where you're, you're saving money by paying rent, you're able to, to invest that money, you, you still come out of it with an asset. Another one says, maybe we should go back to smaller homes. Like when I was a kid, first home was 906 square foot home, not like the 1,500 plus homes uh, to start today. Well, look, if, if there's demand for that, there will be supply for that. And, and, yeah, I think, you know, the homes we see today are homes that are being built because they're homes that people want to buy. I think if, you know, people are in the market for something that's on the smaller side, then they're more likely to be looking at condos. Is, is there a demand for 900 square feet homes? And by the way, another text says, Rob, landlords can raise up leases and do so all the time. At least you can lock in with banks longer. Right? And that was one of the points made in terms of stability. You walk in with a bank, you know what your mortgage payments are. That's, you've got that certainty. If you're renting, or even if you're on a lease, right? I mean, uh, there's, there's a lot more instability there. Uh, this is Terry. Terry, go ahead. Hi. Thanks for taking my call. You bet. When my husband and I bought our home, we bought what we could afford, and then we worked up to a bigger house as yeah. our kids grew. And that's the way it's supposed to be, but I don't see that with the younger generation happening now. And the other thing I wanted to mention is I volunteer for In From the Cold, and in 2007, we had three-generation family come in to the inn two or three times because they couldn't get a place to rent, and that was in 2007, so the height of that boom. That is always a problem. 
and we're always at the mercy of renters or, pardon me, landlords. So Mm -hmm. it does um, work well for you to be able to own your home. You just have to be able to buy something that you can afford rather than something that you think you need. Yeah, but that's the challenge. So my wife and I, we bought our first home in uh, 2003, so a a starter Mm -hmm. home. We we moved to a different home in 2015. So just those 12 years, the, the, the price of that home doubled in value. So, I mean, it yep. worked out well for us when we sold it, but did people's incomes double over those 12 years? Probably not. So what for us in 2003 was an affordable starter home, I think was a lot less affordable as a starter home by, by 2015. And I think that's, that's part true. of the concern. But people are also looking for um, convenience, too. And yep. sometimes you have to drive a little bit to be able to be able to buy a home. Yeah. Well, and that's what's happening, right? And I mean, you know, people are moving out into the suburbs, moving out into bedroom communities, and uh, because they just get they get priced down to the inner city. Well, right? and that's what happened with us. We had yep. to buy outside of the city to be able to afford it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so. that's that's part of what's going on here. Definitely, Terry. Appreciate that. This is Vincent. Hi, Vincent. Hi. Um, thanks for taking the call. There's uh, so I'm a homeowner. Have been since uh, since I left the military in '96, uh, and. Um, while I advocate for home ownership, the cost of the big five appliances and furnace and roof, and those things can be catastrophic mm-hmm. uh, financially to people. But this this idea of demonizing, and I'm not saying you are, but some people demonize rent rentals as you know the home the person that owns a property is going to just jack prices, and that's just not true. There's not, I mean, there is some evidence to support that. But the person that owns a property that's renting it to save my family, they also want a, uh, a renter that's going to pay their bills. Let's not yeah. let's not assume that they just want their money, and when the market rises, they're going to jack rent because they also want somebody who's going to take care of their property because their property is an investment for them down the road, who's going to not destroy it and and pays their rent on time and all these things like. People would love to have an ideal renter, and it's not always about the money. It's just making positive. It's uh, just making sure you're getting more rent than you're paying in mortgage. Yeah, no, that, that's a good point, Vincent. Appreciate the phone call, Catherine. Welcome to the program. Oh, hi, Rob. Thank you hi. for taking my call. I strongly believe uh, renting is much more expensive than, of course, is for some people like condos and and so on. Not if one suits all, but uh, renting is very expensive. It's kind of hotel lifestyle, which you cannot take opportunity of some sales and sales and stuff like that. And mostly we keeping in mind at the moment of conversation, people, they need to help themselves. And when they are renting, constantly there is that threat, rent is going to go up, and it is, and it's expensive. If they would be in the house, they could have that deep freeze, they could just do certain things, as I speak from my experience. Experience as a single mother, educated kids through university, engineers, and so on. If I would have lived in an apartment, which I did, I quickly realized I can't afford it. But when I moved to the house, that absolutely, the budget was completely differently distributed and did mm-hmm. work out, and I could manage and never had a you know need for draining taxpayers' money. I always managed to do it, but in apartment, there is always that threat you may not manage. Yeah, that's an interesting point, Catherine. Appreciate the phone call. Um, you know, that's the thing. I mean, like I say, if you find a situation that makes sense for you and you think you're getting good value through your rent, then, then by all means, right, make, make that work for you. 
Uh, certainly, I, and I find it too, and, and this is more anecdotal from a lot of ads I see posted, uh, people who are looking to rent out homes, either homes they've owned, or they own, or homes they've moved out of and don't want to sell. Uh, and typically what I see posted as rent for like a home, a house, is, is a lot more than, than what you'd be paying for a mortgage on that home. So I, I don't see a lot of examples just anecdotally. And I'm, look, I'm, in fairness, I'm not out searching around to see what rents are. But just anecdotally, what I see often, I, I, I raise, you know, to me, raise the question, where's the value then in renting that home? I mean, if you don't have the resources to make a down payment uh, and get a mortgage, then I guess you got to make do with that. But a lot of those situations to me seem like I, I don't know where there's, there's the value for the, uh, for the renter in those situations. Anyway, this is Rob. Rob, go ahead. Hey, Rob. Um, I, you know, I think the only way to do it is, <laughs> some people may think I'm nuts, but uh, to bring in a 40-year mortgage, uh, you know, that's the only way you can lower house payments. I mean, the government can't force people to take less for their homes, so the homes are still going to be whatever the, the market rate is today. But in order to make them affordable, instead of having a, like a 30-year mortgage or a 15-year mortgage, uh, because say say quickly, for example, if you've got a 25-year-old child, right? Mm-hmm. They're going to move out of the house. They're going to have to live somewhere for 40 years, from 25 to 65. So why not kind of have a mortgage follow them? And, uh, you know, that way you could probably knock off, I don't know, you'd have to do the math, but probably like 500 bucks a month off of that. And what difference does it make if, if you're paying it over 30 years or 40 years? You know, if it's somewhere that's livable for you to live? You know, and it's not draining you financially each and every month, like sadly it is for a lot of people. And I still think owning is better than renting because, you know, at the end of 20, 30, 40 years, you know, you should have something, as you know, with a little bit of equity versus renting. Basically, you walk away and you have nothing. Yeah, that's a good point, Rob. Appreciate the phone call. seems to be a consensus these days that social media is kind of making us all miserable. Maybe Twitter in particular. Twitter just seems like a real angry place a lot of the time. Uh, Maybe it would be good, a good thing to take a break, to take a, a digital detox, to just unplug from it all. But are we really going to be happier as a result? Not necessarily. A new paper published in Media Psychology suggests that we're not actually happier when we abstain from social media. Or those that do are not necessarily better off. Now, joining us uh, to talk about uh, this research and uh, what it tells us about a relationship with social media, uh, very pleased to welcome in the program the lead author in this study, uh, Jeffrey Hall, a professor, also associate chairperson of the Department of Communication Studies at Kansas University. Jeffrey, great to have you with us. You're welcome to the program. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. Uh, from your perspective, why, why is it important, do you think, then, to, to understand our relationship with social media, understand what kind of an impact it's, it's having on our well-being? Well, I mean, the answer is pretty uh, direct, given what you just said, right? I mean, people believe and they're worried that social media is harming them or hurting their lives or hurting our uh, young adults or our adolescents, and it's so pervasively used. I mean, the average Facebook user alone spends 50 minutes a day on the site, not to mention Twitter and Instagram and Snapchat. People are spending a ton of time on social media, and we're worried what it's going to do to us. Right. Where does that worry come from? I mean, is it just you know our natural in- inclination toward anxiety, or or I mean, is where, where did this idea come from that that it's making us unhappy or miserable? 
Well, I think there's two ways to think about this. One is is that almost every major technological revolution usually comes with a backlash that's like this, a concern that it's going to ruin our lives from the radio to the television to video games to the Internet to social media, and I would argue now the smartphone. And I think that each one of those generations experienced a similar sort of very deep and strong concern that this was going to have a, a deleterious effect on our well-being. But I think this one specifically has generated a lot of talking heads and, and public opinion that are shouting from whatever place they can get on uh, to say how just bad social media is. You know, Sherry Turkle from MIT, uh, Twinge from UC uh, um, San Diego. It is a very, very popular topic. It is. Uh, but I guess, as you say, I mean, like any other hypothesis, uh, we need to study this, see what's there. So how do you go about then studying a question like this? Well, that's the challenge. So for years and years, people have been doing it using correlational-based results. And what that means is that you take someone's measure of their self-reported well-being, whether that be depression or loneliness or life satisfaction, and then you ask them in various different ways how much time they spend on social media or how many different social media platforms they are. And then you run a correlation between the two. And what's interesting is that years and years of gathering this data has found that there's a small negative association between well-being and social media use, which had suggested that social media causes, uh, you know, this decline in whatever well-being measure that you have. Mm -hmm. What's interesting is at that same time, the number of experimental studies where people actually were experimentally required to abstain from using social media were, were not multiplying at the same rate. Only about five of them had been actually done by the time that I designed the study that I did. And an additional four or five have come out afterwards. That's interesting. So in, in this study then, you were able then to, to study those who, who actually had decided to abstain from social media. Well, we paid them to. <laughs> right. So, right. This is, uh, so what happened was that I, in 2017, we started out in the study, and what we did is we recruited uh, to about 215 adults and we asked them to, were, to stay off of social media for either one week, two weeks, three weeks, or four weeks. And then we had another group of people who didn't change their social media use. Mm -hmm. And every one of those people were in, um, they were paid for their, their service, and um, we monitored them very closely. In fact, what we did is we asked them to friend every single one of our social media accounts so that we could monitor their social media use over the course of the study. And every single day of the study that were in it, they were um, asked at the end of the day or right in the next morning to fill out a very short measure that said, basically, how did you feel today? How good was your day? You know, how lonely did you feel today? And did you have a, you know, a good, effective well-being, meaning more positive than negative moods? And we did this every single day that they were in the study. And then, unfortunately, we lost a lot of people because they couldn't stay off social media or they cheated and didn't tell us and we found <laughs> because we were watching them. Yeah. Um, we also lost people who just couldn't keep up with the study because it was a lot to ask of folks. And some people provided us with not great data, and we were able to screen that out. So it left us uh, with 130 people who had actually completed the entire study. And then we looked. How much time were people off of social media, and did it have any relationship to whether or not on any given day they had a better quality day, more positive than negative emotions, or were less lonely? And the answer is no. It didn't make any difference. That's interesting. So, I mean, as you say, maybe there's a sample size issue there, but um, certainly the, the findings are significant. Um, what, what does that tell us then about our relationship with social media or, or this notion that it's, it's compounding our, our misery? Yeah, so the sample size issue one is really interesting because after all of those daily reports added up, we had over 3,000 observations. So we probably have the power to be able to detect that kind of day-to-day -day change. Um, however, if it is the case that the power is, was insufficient, it means that the size of the effect is so small 
as it may not actually be significant. In a major study from the UK, they actually said that social media use may only explain one half of 1% of the variance in people's well-being. So if it is the case that social media causally related, uh, is related to us feeling less positively, it may be just only a tiny, tiny contributor to that. But I think on the other hand, one thing to think about is this does not say, though, which is something which I think is also quite plausible, which is that people who are depressed, who are lonely, or people who do not have good social connections with their real-life friends and family may turn to social media and use it more. Mm-hmm. It seems quite plausible to me that what's happening is social media is more like a, a symptom rather than a cause. Yeah, that's interesting. And I mean, yeah, like you say, if, if someone is experiencing feelings of, of loneliness or just, just not feeling themselves, that, that maybe it's, it's easy to point a finger at social media. But perhaps then, as you say, they're getting kind of, it's kind of getting disproportionately blamed. That's right. So if you look at somebody, let's say that you have someone in your, your life and you notice that all of a sudden they're on Facebook all the time or all of a sudden they're tweeting a whole lot or, or something like that. And you also notice that they seem to be going through a really rough time or they're, they're particularly depressed or low, low affect or, you know, something going on in their lives. You may think that social media is actually causing them to do so. And a lot of, I would say, adults looking, look at their children or their adolescents using media come to that conclusion. But what's also a plausible conclusion is, is that they feel lousy and they're turning to social media to make it better. A lot of people who study social media suggest that people, because it's readily available, it's always there on your phone, right there following you around, people turn to it in order to feel socially reconnected to others or to be able to kind of get away from a negative mood state. But I would argue that this does not mean that it causes those things. It just means that it's a really poor substitute to real friends and family. Yeah. Right, that's the thing, and this isn't an argument to say that, that people should be on social media, and there may be all no. kinds of good reasons for, for avoiding social media, but at least in terms of those claims that it is contributing to un- unhappiness, I, I guess we should take those with, with a grain of salt. Yeah, I think we should treat those conclusions with a lot more caution, because yeah. I think that the evidence is stronger that it's not causally related, but it is still correlated. And one, one last point that I would make, too, is that I do think it's possible that actually people have very positive social media practices. Uh, social media can be a source of keeping in touch with others. Yeah. It can be a way to uh, get social support. So I'm not of the opinion that you just need to stop everything that you're doing, but I'm also not of the opinion that you should go on a huge abstinence because you know it's going to make your life better, because I don't think the evidence suggests it will. Yeah, that's an important point. Uh, we'll leave it there. Professor Hall, thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Really appreciate this. It has been my pleasure. Thank you. All right. Likewise. There you go. Jeffrey Hall uh, with the uh, Kansas University Department of Communication Studies, lead author on in this study. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.